Circle, and welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane. I am your host. And look, I want to say good afternoon to Washington, D.C. and our WPFW listening audience. And Sego to those listening to the show as a podcast or on any of the affiliate stations carrying the show. And by the way, however you listen to the program, make sure that you support your content provider. All right. Um, a little bit of a, of a, a mixed bag today, but one of the things I got to get back to, and, and I talk about it often here, and I want to explain a little bit why. The mascot issue is an important issue to me, and, and for a number of reasons, and not the least of which, <laughs> frankly, is the fact that it's one of the battles that we're winning, and, and that helps. It helps because, look, as, much, as, as hard as we try to stop pipelines and the advancement of mineral extraction and any number of other things that are, are just so detrimental to all of us in the long run. These are tough battles, and we don't win them often. I mean, I'm not saying we don't win them at all. And I also don't want to say that the fight is futile, because sometimes that resistance, 10,000 people showing up at Standing Rock, that made a difference. It, it, it meant something. Now, did it stop the, the Dakota Access Pipeline? No, not necessarily. But, you know, just the idea that Native people are becoming visible. And, and this kind of gets me back to, to the mascot issue. And the reason it's connected is because the mascot issue is, is predominantly, I mean, although there's still some pro teams with, with some Native mascots, it's predominantly a high school thing. I mean, there's, and there's even a couple of colleges, Florida State comes to mind, but... But it's high schools, thousands of high schools across the United States. And these same high schools do nothing to teach about Native existence, but they still brandish a logo, a mascot, you know, a buffoon dressed as a Native person or whatever. They, they have any number of names, everything from Indians to savages to redskins to raiders to, you know, warriors. <laughs> There's a town in Iowa that calls themselves the Mason City Mohawks. I don't know why a town in Iowa are calling themselves Mohawks, but, but that's, that's what you have. And you have this all over the country. And, you know, and there, are other, <laughs> there are other names besides those as well. Obviously, every name of a, of a native peoples um, is, is used. Cherokees, uh, you know, again, uh, Mohawks, uh, uh, the, the Fighting Sioux, whatever. There, there are any number of names that get used for predominantly white people to play, quote-unquote, Indian um, as, and, and use us as their mascots. And, and the crazy part is, and, and I got to say this, there are no other mascots that these people obsess over. I mean, nobody spends, you know, you know an ordinary amount of time in their 50s fighting to maintain their panther identity. You know, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't exist. It doesn't happen. Um, you know, lions, cougars, whatever, whatever your mascot is. But you're going to find people who've been out of high school for 30, 40, 50 years sometimes still raising hell about not being able to call themselves Indians or Redskins or, or whatever else. And, it's, and, and it's, it's kind of where this whole thing changes when you use a people, and specifically a Native people, for, for a mascot. It is, it is really, really troublesome. And, 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 it, and it does, in a way, turn into essentially identity theft. Because, again, there are no bears, tigers, or lions that are having their identity stolen from them. And even as, you know, kids play with these emblems on their helmet as, as panthers or cougars or whatever else, you know that panthers and cougars still exist. The problem is Native people are represented as relics of the past. I mean, that's it. I mean, they, they use usually something like a 18th century image. I mean, maybe 19th century, depending on how far west you go. Um, image, you know, so it's, a, it's usually a, a decapitated head, a profile, you know, cut off at the neck that, you know, that is slapped on the side of a helmet or a, you know, baseball hat or, a, you know, painted on gym floor. And it is never anything but a, a representation of, what white people view native people are as. I mean, look, 
we even oftentimes hear it as, as Native people where, where a white person says, well, you don't look like an Indian. Well, it's because you have this image of what we're supposed to look like painted on your gym floor by a white person. I mean, this is, this is where the identity thing comes in, uh, identity theft comes in, because we're walking around as Native people. We're living our lives, oftentimes still on Native lands, many times with our, with our own language and, and many aspects of our culture are still intact. But then you have a white person say, well, you don't look like an Indian. You know, of course, I'm, I don't even like the word, so I mean, we'll, I'll say that right now. It's, it's a misnomer you know, caused by Christopher Columbus that, that you know, I, I, Louis C.K. did a whole bit on it one time where he, where he said, uh, you're Indians, right? And he said, no, no, we're not. And he goes, ah, you're Indians for another 500 years. I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a nice little bit. But, um, you know, so this is it. We, we get, our identity gets defined by the general public, which, of which we are a very, very small percentage. So when you consider that Native people represent less than 1%, one-tenth of 1% of the U.S. population, our voices are oftentimes very, very hard to hear. Yeah, you put 10,000 of us together to try to stop a pipeline, even if we're not successful, we at least become visible. And the other thing about schools, they don't teach about Native people. And in fact, 90% of all high schools don't teach anything about Native people beyond the 19th century. So it's like, it's like we ended, like, like we died. You know, all the real Indians died off and 20 other myths about Native people. A book by my friend, you know, Gillio Whitaker and... Uh, uh, and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. But no, I mean, this is it. We're, we're, we're continuously represented as a people of the past. So whether you're a little kid in elementary school that's using this logo or whether you're, you know, you know, a high school graduate, you have never been taught anything about us in any way, shape, or form in, in any contemporary fashion. And to the extent that you learned anything, most of it is really isolated down to this image on the, on the side of your football helmet. There, there's no representation. And look, I'm battling, well, pretty much the fight's over with my, my old high school. They call themselves the Cambridge Indians. They can't even tell you what Indians they claim to be. They just use the, the generic term. They've used generic imagery. They used to have like the, the Hollywood Plains Indian style headdress. In fact, many of the, uh, the, the, uh, the schools that have native uh, mascots in that Albany, New York, the Capital District area of New York, are still using Plains Indian headdresses, even though that's not what any Native people indigenous to that area ever looked like. Cambridge had the same thing up until about 20 years ago. They finally switched it to a, another generic stereotypical image that was you know, like, like 20 other schools up and down the East Coast use um, that looks more like the Woodlands Indian. And of course, that, I've had, argued with people who say, well, that, that logo was specifically designed for Cambridge. No, it wasn't. It's clip art. I mean, it, it isn't. It, it's the same image used for literally dozens of other schools in, in, in not just in that area, but all up and down the, in the entire East Coast. So, I mean, it, it's absurd when, when you listen to people try to make their, their impassioned argument about how important that mascot, that imagery, that name, uh, that logo is to them. White people is to them. And the crazy part is the, the Cambridge logo is actually in whiteface. It's a native drawing. It's a drawing of a, again, typical, stereotypical profile of a native person, um, and it's white-faced. I don't know why it's white-faced, but then as I look through and I see a whole bunch of the other schools using the, the exact same image, many of them have them in whiteface. I mean, they've got color around the outside. They might color, do a little bit of colorization of the feathers and that kind of stuff, but the face oftentimes is white-faced. Go figure. I don't you know. It, I, it's, it actually happens too often for it to just to be a mistake. But, but anyway, there you have it. But the reason I think the mascot issue is so important is because it connects to so many other things. And, and granted, like I said, I, one of the things that keeps me driven with this is that we win. We, we actually get schools like my old high school, Cambridge, that no longer is, is the Cambridge Indians. They don't have a new mascot yet, and they're, they're trying to dig in. They want to fight the, uh, the uh, New York State Department of Education commissioner who ruled they had to get rid of the mascot because of certain things. Well, not only because the, the board retired it and then tried to bring it back, but what she said, and this is Dr. Betty Rosa, uh, who's the commissioner of education in New York State, 
She said that even if they hadn't flip-flopped, you know, retired and then unretired, she would have ruled for the petitioners who wanted her to get rid of this thing because the school board had abused its discretionary authority by maintaining the mascot. That's about as close to a statewide ban as we've heard so far. So any school in New York State that has a native mascot is now looking at that ruling and looking at that language and thinking, well, is a statewide ban coming? Does it have to be a legislative act or does this commissioner have the authority to do it on her own? Well, she certainly had the authority to tell Cambridge you can't have the mascot. So if she, had the, if she has the authority to tell one school they can't do it, I'm pretty sure she's got the authority to tell all schools. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out. But, but this isn't just a New York thing. Like I said, thousands of these schools across the United States are still using native people for mascots. And let me say that again, because I, I think it's important to, 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 to say it just that way. We are being used by white people for mascots. Now, we could argue whether we are actually being used or if, they're, or if they're erasing us and trying to use our past for the mascots, which is kind of what's going on. But when you argue with them and say, oh, no, we're honoring Native people. No, you're not. You, you claim to be honoring us, but you're not. So one of the things I wanted to bring up today uh, was I had something happen to me a couple of days ago. I had an email sent to me from somebody who is actually trying to fight this thing in Mason City, Iowa, trying to, you know, and they've already retired their, their Mohawk mascot. But this is a town of like, I don't know, 30,000 people or something like that. And, and there are people just losing their minds over this. They've got a Facebook group page with several thousand people, you know, you know keep the Mohawk and that kind of stuff. I mean, whatever their, their expression is, I don't know. Um, but one of these people um, sent me an email, and he said, look, I just read a book. And the book was by, uh, and from, some of you may be familiar with, with Nick Offerman. He's, he's written a couple of books, and he, he's done television and a few things. He's, you know, he's, he's pretty well known. But he's, he's also a New York Times bestselling author. But his latest book, which is Where the Deer and the Antelope Play, I mean, it's not a book about mascots. I mean, it's really a book about he and a couple of his buddies going into, um, you know, essentially communing with nature, going, you know, taking some trips to some state parks. And, and you know, he starts off with Glacier National Park. And, 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 uh, and, but what happens is even as they immerse themselves in, in nature and the glory and splendor of these state parks, social justice issues kind of creep back into the conversations, into, the, into everything from the way that they're buying their stuff to go on their trip to some of the history of the parks and, and, and some of the, the, the racism that guys like Teddy Roosevelt expressed as they were trying to make these glorious places available, predominantly for white people. And, of course, you had to chase all the Native people off of these parks first. So, you know, it starts out as this, you know, almost like it's going to be this book about their adventures. But it comes back into conversations about, you know, you know about behavior and as it turns out, <laughs> Nick Offerman um, grew up in Manuka, Illinois. And Manuka, Illinois is one of these towns that is immersed and are engaged in one of these, these mascot battles. And you know, they call themselves the Manuka Indians. Um, in fact, I've uh, participated in a Zoom conference with their school board, or, the, or actually their whole committee that's supposed to be looking at this thing. And Nick Offerman went to school there. And his father is actually, I think, the mayor of Manuka. So, so I've been told. If that's not true, then, then uh, that's what I was told anyway. Um, and, of course, he's got family there. And he, he, he's very close to, the, to, to Manuka, Illinois. I mean, went to school in <laughs> um, University of Illinois. I mean, he, this is kind of where, this is his, home, his hometown, right? And I guess one of his nieces or something like that encouraged him to sign the petition uh, to remove the mascot. That's, so he did. And he immediately became involved in the debate. And, and of course, being somewhat, somebody with a little bit of fame, um, became targeted. And, you know, and, and he, he basically got bashed and was insulted and had hate and vitriol spewed towards him. Um, and he mentions this in his, um, in his book. He, he has to mention Manuka. Um, 
so uh, let me read a small passion because it's uh, 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 you know, a uh, uh, portion of, of what's, what's here, an excerpt, if you will. That many angry replies to my Manuka petition sentiments suggested that I should simply shut up. But I would counter that with A, that only makes you sound guilty, and B, the path to social justice and equality for all Americans and ultimately all Earthlings is going to require that all of us safe, white, oppressed softies shut the hell up. <laughs> then he says, scattered throughout this thread of angry comments were occasional flashes of reason and rationality, especially from one very patient fellow who doggedly attempted to refute all of the ignorance being hurled at me and at the issue. He kept urging all the people hating on me and the issue to watch a video by a fellow named John Kane entitled, We Are Not Your Mascots. So I watched it. He's a Native American activist, a member of the Mohawk tribe, and he states the case quite plainly from the point of view of the only people we should be asking about this issue, the Native people being depicted. Well, how do you like that? I got mentioned in somebody else's book. Um, totally unbeknownst to me. Uh, but as people have begun picking up this book, I've noticed an uptick, and I encourage you, if you, if you want to go to my YouTube channel, which is Let's Talk Native TV, you can see on, not only a bunch of the videos that I uh, put out there that, that, you know, that feature my podcast, my Let's Talk Native podcast, but if you, if you scroll down the page, you'll see uh, some shorter-form videos that I've done. And I have addressed everything from the Doctrine of Christian Discovery and Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, to you know, gaming law, um, Christopher Columbus, but I also have um, a video that's called We Are Not Your Mascots, and it is a, it, it's pretty well done, I must say, and, and I cover a lot of ground. I talk about everything from residential schools to, you know, the genocide editorials of L. Frank Baum. I mean, I, I, I cover it all, and, and although part of the emphasis of the, of the video is, you know, and this was produced before the Washington football team had changed its name, so part of it was, was you know, the Redskins, right? But but I address all all of these non-native schools that have adopted these uh, these native uh, mascots. But so that was kind of a you know a, a plus or a, you know a good note or a high note, I guess, uh, of the week to to find out that Nick Offerman had mentioned my um, my video and gave it a plug, and now it has caused it to get a, a few more views, I guess. Um, but I also appreciate that he that he addressed the issue in a book that didn't necessarily have to be a book that, that included this. He also goes on to say, here's what I would urge all of the non-Native American people with strong opinions about the subject to, to break out of their uh, sopolistic uh, bubbles and simply do a little homework. He goes, I kept reading, and it didn't take long. I found a few more great citations from people like Adrian Keene, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and a faculty member at Brown, U Brown University's American Studies and Ethnic Studies Department. She said, I would love to be honored and res respected as a Native person if our treaties were honored, if our sovereignty was recognized, if our lands were taken back into Indigenous hands. Those are the types of things that honor me as a Native person, not a stereo stereotypical image combined with a racial slur. So, yeah, so Nick went farther than just take a position. He went on to, to cite what most of us believe, don't tell me your, your, your mascot honors us when we're still being deprived of some of the most basic things of life and we're still having our lands encroached upon. Even if not taken from us, the control of our lands are oftentimes uh, you know, embattled with, with, with state jurisdiction and federal jurisdiction and any number of things. So, so I really appreciated what Nick did. And, and I've read the first 100 pages or so of his book. I haven't gotten all the way through it, but... Uh, um, but you know, it's, it's a decent read. It, it meanders, <laughs> but he does use this, you know, communion with nature that he and a couple of his friends participate in that to bring him back to social justice issues, you know, obviously environmental issues, but, but just racism and, you know, capitalism, any, any, any number of things that are, that are still so problematic, um, you know, and, and really especially problematic in, in American society. So, yeah, so there, you know, there we have it. I, and, and I wanted to, to mention that. But, you know, it, again, it, it goes beyond Cambridge, New York, or Manuka, Illinois. Like I said, I'm, 
now becoming involved with Mason City, Iowa, and their, their mascot. I've been asked to weigh in and participate in Neshaminy, um, Langhor down in Langhorne, Pennsylvania, with Neshaminy High School, um, in Vermont, and in uh, Massachusetts, and uh, Idaho. And, you know, it's, it's amazing to me how many places, California, uh, Wisconsin, you know, like I said, any number of places that you, and, and it's crazy because no matter how red or blue the state is, this issue exists. And it does become polarized. I mean, invariably, the right takes a much stronger stance on the mascot issue. And, and it's kind of crazy that, you know, that when you look at what the right, the political right has done, they not only, you know, view any of this push against Native mascots as cancel culture, they immediately connect it to critical race theory. And, you know, when you're talking about 18 or 20 states in the United States where governors have banned high schools from teaching criminal, uh, you know, <laughs> critical race theory, which none of them did in the first place. I mean, critical race theory is not taught, taught in schools. It's, it's taught in some law schools as part of a, a, a law course of study, but it's not taught in high school. But now, because these states have banned it, if you teach anything that somehow could make a white child feel guilty, they're going to reinterpret that as critical race theory. There was a, there's a guy, I was just reading about this guy who got, um, I don't know if it was in Texas, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember where it was, but I was just reading a story about a guy who got fired because he was teaching about white privilege. It wasn't critical race theory. Critical race theory is the study of, of how racism affects law and, and, uh, and the justice system. That's what, that's what critical race theory is more geared to. It's, it's really geared towards law and legislation. And the, and the impacts that racism um, plays on the legislative process. But the idea of teaching something about, you know, about slavery or, or about white privilege or, or trying to teach a school why it's wrong to use Native people for a mascot, that can be interpreted you know, now as critical race theory. And there are teachers who are being fired for this. And so you don't have to be fired to have things change. All you have to know is that if you teach something that somebody else can interpret as critical race theory, you could be placing your, uh, your career on je in jeopardy. So you toe the line. And, and, and see, this is the problem. I mean, I don't know that critical race theory would, would have or will have ever been taught in high schools anyway, but that's not what the issue here is. The issue is, and, and you can hear those who are, who are railing against this critical race theory hysteria, I don't want my child to feel guilty being a white person. That's literally what they've said. You know, and so, so you have the right being pro-mascot, anti-critical race theory. They're anti-mask. They're anti-vaccination. They're also against expanding voter rights. You know, so, I mean, when you look at this, how, you know, and I'm not even getting into, you know, other social issues or, you know, women's rights or reproductive rights or anything. I'm not even going to, not even going there, but, but it's, it's insane. And so the mascot issue touches into all those things. And of course, you know, I always bring up the fact that the, the, the biggest irony of, of schools, of, of white villages adopting native mascots for the schools. So their children can play as Indians. And I don't mean just play, not only compete in sports, but, but literally dress up as Indians. I mean, red face, war paint. I mean, there's some of these schools that they go through this program in, in November, what they call National Native American Heritage Month, where they give these little white kids, you know, Indian names and, and they make up, you know, some process for it. And it has nothing to do with Native culture. It's mockery. It, it's mockery in its truest sense. And this all began at the same time, like I said, Native kids were being ripped from their homes, from their families, from their communities, from their nations, sent sometimes hundreds or thousands of miles away, imprisoned in what they were calling schools or residential schools, where their hair was chopped off, 
Their clothes were ripped off. Their language was forbidden. Any aspect of their culture was, was prohibited. They were beaten. They were neglected. They were malnourished. They, were, uh, you know, they, they weren't provided pr proper medical care. They were abused, raped, sterilized, and they were killed. Now, a lot of attention is being drawn to Canada because Canada had residential schools, not nearly as many as the United States did, mind you. And they got the idea from the United States. But Canada already went through what they called their Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was really BS. I mean, it was really a debacle. In fact, there is still information. This thing's been over for, oh, let me see. Six, it was six or seven years ago this thing um, was over. It was done. And there are still truths, hidden truths that are trickling out. Among them have been native territories or native peoples who had hired the services of engineers to, to operate ground penetrating radar to locate bodies that were buried either in mass graves or unmarked graves in, uh, in or about these, uh, these Canadian residential schools. Now, let's be clear, the same thing exists on the U.S. side, but they haven't begun, they haven't even gotten to that place. But Canada had their Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and there was a limited amount of truth and very little reconciliation. And that's where, as you know, I've talked about this thing. I, I promote restoration, not reconciliation, because reconciliation means the restoration, ironically, it starts with restoration, of friendly relations. I don't know that we ever had friendly relations. You didn't take our children because you were our friends. You didn't take our land because you were our friends. And to be clear, you took our children so you could take more of our lands. That was, that was all, uh, part of the goal. And so you could ethnically cleanse them, remove their native identities. In fact, the slogan was, kill the Indian, save the man. I know I've said it before, but the mascot thing is, you know, is the perfect mirror. It's like the, these, <laughs> these, alternate, these alternate universes where white people get to imitate native people and native people are beaten Native children are beaten to the point of death and permanent injury for being Native people. So I use the mascot issue to talk about residential schools. Not that they can't be talked about all by themselves, but the, but the extreme hypocrisy of the, of the mere fact that you still have white people. I mean, even as the news is breaking, I mean, even as news is coming out every day about 200, 300, 400, 7,000 kids, and, and it's close to 8,000 now, on the Canadian side alone, who were buried at residential schools. Now, none of these white schools with, with native mascots have graveyards associated with them. No children die in the white schools. But, but when all is said and done, it'll probably be 15,000, 20,000 kids on the Canadian side alone, probably three to five times more than that on the U.S. side died in school, died in custody of state-run or state-funded and church-run schools that indoctrinated them with religion, taught them that any of their beliefs were paganistic, it was devil worship, taught them to reject who they were, hate who they were. And look, you go across native territories today and you'll see churches all over the freaking place. I mean, I just saw somebody post something today about angels. A native person. Angels. Angels? Really? You're going to talk about how angels hear our cries and they comfort us in times of, uh, of distress? Really? Where the hell were all those damn angels when, when, when kids were being murdered at residential schools? When scalps were being taken for bounties? When massacres were taking place in Sand Creek and in Wounded Knee? I mean, it's, it's amazing the impact that the assimilation, this forced assimilation at residential schools has. We still have people today who are loyal to their churches and loyal to the military. They enlist at a highest rate than any other people. In spite of the fact that the military killed their ancestors, the churches abused their children. They removed our kids so they could take more land. They removed our kids so they could strip them of native identity while white kids 
in these schools could wear their mom's makeup as war paint, beat on their oatmeal cans for drums, and play Indian. And, and it didn't stop when they graduated. I mean, the people that I fight in Manuka or in Mason City or in Cambridge, New York, aren't the kids. It, they are people my age, some older, some younger. They're 40, 50, 60, 70-year-olds that are still obsessed with their right to play Indian. I mean, honestly, when the news began to break about children buried in unmarked and mass graves on the Canadian side, that's when you would have thought white people would have shut the hell up. But they didn't. They continue to dig in. Right now, Cambridge, New York, had the Commissioner of Education formally rule that they cannot use the Indian's mascot. And it has to be completely gone by the end of the school year. And <laughs> board meetings are happening as we speak so they can figure out how they can fight this. There, you know, there are billboards going up in Cambridge, you know, you know, keep the pride, I don't know what the hell, some, some, you know, with the mascot on it. We had to, some of our folks had to let the, the rescue squad in Cambridge know that you probably shouldn't have the, uh, the native logo on there. And they immediately responded and took it down and said, yeah, you're right, we don't want to politicize, you know, we serve as the community regardless of people's ideology as it relates to the mascot or politics or anything else. So they took the, 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 the logo off the side of their, their brand new um, ambulance or fire truck, whatever it was. But, but we're seeing people dig in. And look, they're probably going to try to fund this thing. And, you know, the school's going to have to spend, you know, probably 10, 20, 30, $40,000 trying to fight this thing. If they're, I mean, to fight the, the ruling of this commissioner, they literally have to bring a lawsuit, take on the, the state attorney general who's going to defend the, the education department, and they're probably going to lose, but they're going to spend the money. Well, and that's if they decide to do it. But this is the crazy part. Watching Mason City, where they've already voted to retire their Mohawks uh, logo, and thousands of people are, are you know, trying to stomp their feet and raise hell about, no, we want it back, we want it back. You know, in spite of, you would have thought when, when the Washington football team retired its racist mascot, when the Cleveland baseball team got rid of its you know, buffoonish uh, logo. You would think more schools would have just said, yeah, it's time. And, and, and why did those teams do that? I'll tell you why. It's because of, the, of the, the reckoning that's happening now with social justice. I mean, it comes in the wake of the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. It comes in the, in the wake of, you know, Charlottesville, uh, the death at Charlottesville and, and, and the, you know, the fight between the white supremacists and, uh, you know, and, and people concerned about social justice. Because as Confederate statues were coming down, so were Columbus statues. Well, this last um, Indigenous Peoples Day <laughs> slash Columbus Day, I saw Lincoln statues defaced. Why? Because Lincoln signed the execution order for the largest mass execution in the history of the United States, 38 Dakota, hung by the neck in a sing on a single gallows the day after Christmas, a week before Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation became in effect. See, but this isn't taught, and this is even before. <laughs> this is even still the 19th century, but it's not taught. What's taught is this is what an Indian looks like on the side of your football, football helmet or on the center of your gym floor. That's the only thing that, that children are learning. Now, I also connect the mascot issue to the fetishizing of Native people, Native women in particular. Native women have a five times greater chance of being raped or sexually assaulted than any other group of people. I'm not just saying white people, any other group of people. One in three Native people, Native women, will be sexually assaulted, if not raped, in their lifetime. One in three. Why would Native people be raped at the highest, uh, at a higher level than, than any, than even any other, you know, marginalized people? 
Well, you've got Disney sexualizing a 12-year-old Pocahontas. You, I mean, you have Pocahontas costumes for, for sale at the Halloween store, at the costume store. Americans have been sexualizing Native women. White people in particular, but, but not just white people, non-Native people, have been over-sexualizing Native women since, since the beginning. Christopher Columbus paid his men with little Native girls. I mean, it, there's an account of, of one of the guys who, who, he said, the captain, the admiral, gave me a young woman. And, and, he, and he writes in his journal about raping her, flogging her, beating her with a rope, thrashing her. And, until she finally gave in. And then says, she performed like a, like a harlot, is what he says in, in, his, in his manuscript. You can find that video, Columbus in his own world, words, uh, on my YouTube channel as well. So this history, this rape culture that, that comes from Europe in the first place, keys in on Native people from the very first day. From the very first day. And continues today with things like man camps. And man camps, if you don't know what a man camp is, it, 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 it's these places that men live at when they work away from home in the, uh, at the oil fields or when they're building pipelines. But man camps go, man camps go back to the, the first exploitation of natural resources from our lands, which was logging. There was actually a... a um, uh, situation uh, um, sitcom in, and I, it had to be in the 70s, maybe even the 60s, about these loggers, and, and it was called Here Comes the Bride because it was these men and they shipped in women to be their companions. Well, that would be the nice version of the way it happens. Man camps, and, and they made it sound like they were almost like mail order brides kind of thing. Man camps, I, I mean, it's, it pains me to even talk about, about these things because Native women, because these, these outlying businesses or extractive industries, whether they're extracting lumber, whether it's, whether it's minerals, whether it's oil, whatever it is, these things always had to have large numbers of men involved. And so they would house them there. And oftentimes these men would have families back home. They would go there to, to earn the big dollars. So maybe they were chasing gold, or maybe they were chasing oil or lumber, or whatever, whatever it is, logging. But when they got away from home, they no longer were confined by the rules of society. No, they were in the wilderness, so they could let jungle fever creep in. And this is where the rape culture even keys in farther on Native women. And not just Native women, two-spirit Native people were equally vulnerable. And in fact, when you, when you look at the, the, the sexual abuse that took place in residential schools, it was little boys. It didn't matter if you were a, a male, a female, transgender, whatever you were, or whatever you are. The rape culture that comes from Europe that is so deeply embedded in American society, it's so deeply embedded that the church could do it for hundreds of years. So I talk about the mascot issue because it's about fetishizing native people. So when you finally come to the realization that native people still do exist, you have this fantasy idea that is wrapped around what you think native people are. That's why when you say, you, you look at somebody, you say, oh, you don't look native to me. But if you see a young girl who's attractive enough to you, you can fantasize about all this fetishizing that you did over your, over your love of your mascot. And of course, it isn't just about the rape and sexual assault. It also is connected to the missing and murdered indigenous women phenomenon or uh, epidemic or whatever you want to call it, the crisis that exists. And I can connect the mascot issue directly to some of these, these other things. And it's not a stretch. I mean, look, I, I, I brought some of this up when I first um, addressed the, the board, the school board in Cambridge, and I had one of these rednecks in the back say, well, it's got to do with our mascot. 
Well, I don't know. You, you make the connection. You explain to me how you can all love and honor Native people so much that you want to honor us with this mascot, and yet one in three Native women are going to be raped in their lifetime. Whether you want to just attribute this to correlation as opposed to causation, well, go ahead. But the correlation is real. And I will maintain that the causation is there as well. So this is what I do. And, and again, while I get some satisfaction in the mascot battle because we're winning it, you know, we, we saw Washington drop its name. We saw Cleveland drop its name. We've seen colleges, the NCAA banned the use of, uh, of, of Native mascots with very few exceptions. And, of course, those exceptions are still problematic. Look, I don't care if some of the leadership of the Seminole of Florida decided that they, they wanted to keep Florida State using their name. It's still wrong. It's still non-Native people mocking Native Look, they, they ride out a white boy on a horse who throws a spear. And, and he's playing Chief Osceola on horseback. And, of course, it's, it's absolutely absurd. The Seminoles were not a horse culture. There's probably no evidence that Osceola rode a horse or threw a spear. But that's what they do. And the white people and, you know, and the Florida State fans just love it. So this is what we are challenged with. I mean, this is, this is the, the thing that we, we, are, we are fighting and winning on. You know, I don't know how long Florida State will maintain its native mascot. But we know that almost all colleges have, have lost, um, lost the right to do that. And we know that high schools are dropping like flies. But for every school that has enough of a conscience within their school board to change, there are, there's another school digging in. Cambridge doesn't, they can't even accept that the, that the fight is over. And it's over. They're still fighting it, and they're still digging in. And, you know, and again, Mason City, they retired the mascot, and they're still digging in, trying to bring it back. There's, there are a few occasions where, where schools retired the mascot, and then by voting in a, a new school board or school board members to, to tip the, the majority of a school board, they were able to bring it back. And, and it'll go away again. I mean, not just because the board will change. I mean, there are state mandates. I think there's five or six states already that have issued, that have legislatively mandated a uh, prohibition against Native mascots. I don't think New York State even needs one. And I know not everybody agrees with me, but I feel like if Dr. Betty Rosa had the authority to tell Cambridge they can't have a mascot, then they have, that she has the authority to tell all schools. They, and I'll tell you, the, what concerns me is if what she's saying in her ruling that she would have ruled for the petitioners simply on the grounds that the school board was abusing its discretion by maintaining the mascot, she's essentially inviting 100-plus other schools in New York State to file petitions. Well, that's going to be a complete backlog. There are other things state ed uh, commissioner should be dealing with than these schools who refuse to do what a previous commissioner 20 years ago called on them to do which is to get rid of the mascot. And, you know, and since that commissioner, Commissioner Mills, had issued that request, New York State has passed laws like Dignity for All Students Act. The Board of Regents has, has pushed forward this diversity, equity, and inclusion policies, you know, for schools to adhere to. None of that stuff can be consistent with a school that is still using Native people as a mascot. By the way... <laughs> Getting back to that critical race theory, I'm waiting for the critical race theory to obliterate what many schools have been doing as far as this diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, policies. I, I, think, I think any state that is attempting or has managed to ban critical race theory is really going to scrutinize any effort to develop a diversity, equity, and inclusion policy. And, and that's just unfortunate because th this isn't just about, it clearly isn't just about Native people. It's about any situation where a child, and these are children, 
are in schools where they can be bullied, where they can be marginalized, where they can be picked on because of whether it's sexual orientation, whether it's the color of their hair, the color of their skin, their accent, their, their spiritual beliefs, whatever it is. This diversity, equity, inclusion is supposed to do everything it can to make a safe space for kids to learn and to, and to, to exist. And this critical race theory hysteria stands to attack all of that stuff. And I'm sorry, but I, I find that, that really, really sad. Really, really sad. You know, I got to mention one other thing, um, you know, before I get done here. Congress just passed the defense, the National Defense Authorization Act. $768 billion for the U.S. military. I mean, that's so much larger than any other country, including China, probably Russia and China combined, I'm sure. And Democrats and Republicans both do it. And, you know, here's the part that really bugs me about this. Beyond the dollars is the process. Because one, one of the other things that happens with these National Defense Authorization Act, Acts, and looking back in the past, is they attach riders, and they call them midnight riders. They, they attach riders at the end of these things. Why? Because if they had a piece of legislation, Congress or Senate, either one, the House or Senate, if they had legislation that they know they couldn't pass on its own, they'll stick it to the back end of defense spending that no, neither Democrat nor Republican will, will oppose because then they'll be called out for it. Oh, you hate the military. You don't support the troops, all that crap. So they stick things in there like converting national parks or native lands directly into copper mines you know, or pipelines, or coal mines, or, or any number of extraction sites. They'll offer leases, mineral leases, on lands that should have been protected, should be in control by Native people in the first place, but aren't. I mean, look, Obama tried to turn um, the Grand Staircase and, and various years into a national monument to protect them from... Um, from industry. He didn't give it back. He didn't give the land back. So, I, you know, I, again, I go back to, you know, Adrian Keel's, uh, you know, um, Keen's comment. You want to honor me? How about some land back? Restore our land, restore our autonomy. Don't just talk to me about your mascot is honoring me. But, I, you know, you see this, and there, there's no debate. Nobody's saying, well, how are you going to pay for that? $768 billion. There's no discussion about that. Not like with the, uh, with the infrastructure bill. You know, and, and again, I don't want to spend a great deal of time talking about American politics, but, you know, I, I felt like I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this because I know what happens when this legislation goes through. Many times, we don't even hear about the things that have been attached to it. They have nothing to do with national defense. I mean, other than, you know... We, we could say national interest. But things that would have nothing to do with national defense get attached to these, these big, huge spending bills because they know nobody would dare oppose it. And, you know, they, they end up, you know, getting down to a point, period of time where, oh, well, well we want to go home for Christmas. We don't care if we just... Sacrifice, added more sacrifice zones out of uh, ancestral native lands. So I wanted to mention that because it, you know, I, I just shake my head when I see this stuff. When I, when I see, you know, and when, and when, we, when they say $768 billion, they aren't talking about over 10 years. These are budgets that are passed annually. It's, it's absolutely absurd. So as I sit here today and, and, and try to get some, I don't know, excitement or gratitude or, or gratification, I guess, out of our mascot fight, I can't help but look at the status of things in the world today.
the political unrest, the social unrest, the disparity in, uh, you know, the income and wealth disparity, in not just in the United States, but everywhere. You know, climate change, global warming, the oppression. And, and again, the polarization of American politics is heating up so bad. And, and, and frankly, even sometimes the left that claims to be our allies can be problematic. Not only because they're, they're, they will approve things like this, this, this $768 billion uh, defense bill, but both the right and the left are still addicted to fossil fuels. We have not successfully stopped a single pipeline. And keep in mind, many of the pipelines that we're fighting have nothing to do with domestic supply. Whether we're talking about gas lines that are going to um, uh, compressor plants to, to, to sell liquefied natural gas to other countries. So when they burn it, they contribute to the, uh, you know, to, to carbon emissions. There it's associated with pipelines carrying tar sands oil from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico, where polluting refineries that are grandfathered in for protection against environmental regulations can process tar sands oil for export to China. And then the United States is gonna say, oh, China, you're a heavy polluter. Well, the United States is not only facilitating with, with energy supply, whether it's coming from Canada or whether it's coming from Pennsylvania, <laughs> but they're also the consumer market that's causing much of, the, uh, of this, carbon, uh, these car this carbon emissions. So again, the hypocrisy and the, the prospect for the future of the United States and the world is looking pretty, you know, pretty grim. And, you know, look, many of our native territories, for all of the poverty that exists on our territories, we're, we may be in many ways isolated, unless we were among those native people living in low-level area, low-lying areas like, you know, like the Pacific Islanders or the or Gulf Coast or you know any of any of the coastal areas, but we're not secure. I'm I'm talking to you from Seneca territory. We're not secure here because where do you think these climate change refugees, when 10 million people are driven out of New York City, where do you think they're going to go? So, yeah, I'm I'm concerned about the future. So, I'll make no apologies for getting a certain amount of gratification out of winning on the mascot fight. And I'm hoping that as we eliminate these mascots and, and in doing so, reveal ourselves as the native people we are, not just native people that white people think we were, that maybe our voices begin, begin to be heard. At some point, the people will realize that Indigenous views and philosophies are going to serve all of us much better than what came across in ships to our lands. I want to thank you for listening. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh. <laughs>